It's like straight up out of a fairy tale. Melissa Solomon was 14 when one of her dreams came true. She got a full scholarship to leave her home in South Africa and spend the summer in the United States at Interlochen Center for the Arts. That's the prestigious boarding school and summer camp for gifted musicians in Michigan. She loved everything about it. The chance to improve as a cellist, the exposure to a new culture, and the opportunity to wander around the green campus with log cabins, a lake, and a wishing well. Picture a wishing well from any of the fairy tales that you know, with the cute little rooftop thing with the little stone base. And it was a cute little wishing well just right in the middle of the campus. One day at that wishing well, she met a couple who changed the course of her life, Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. They had a little dog. Um, and I went up to pet the dog. This chance encounter with the couple and a little dog she thinks was named Max was the start of a six-year odyssey that brought Melissa into Epstein and Maxwell's world. Little by little, they insinuated themselves in her life, overriding her decisions, persuading her parents to comply with their agenda, and always using the blunt force of wealth when persuasion wasn't enough. I'm Arielle Levy, and this is Broken, Jeffrey Epstein. He is, of course, a man who abused and trafficked hundreds of girls during his lifetime. He did it using a personal fortune estimated to be well over half a billion dollars. And that money gave him the use of private airplanes, a private island, and multi-million dollar homes all over the world. It also gave him the cover for his crimes. Today, Two stories of two different ways girls were sucked into Jeffrey Epstein's orbit. They're completely different. One story, Melissa's, involves meticulous slow-motion manipulation that never leads to a sexual attack, though it is creepy and unnerving. The other story, in the second half of the show, reveals a faster, more vicious, less calibrated side of Epstein. Let's start the night after Melissa met that warm and engaging couple, Jeffrey and Ghislaine, with their little dog, Max, by the wishing well. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. So she got back to her bunk. And what does she find on her pillow but a handwritten note from Jeffrey and Ghislaine, and it says she should go back to the same spot the next day. So she does. They asked me if I'm coming back next summer. And I said, no, I'm not, because you can only win that scholarship once, and then they give somebody else a turn. And so they said, well, they'd like to sponsor me. We did some calling around, by the way, and we found out that Melissa was a really strong cellist. But Jeffrey and Ghislaine didn't know any of that. 
Here they're offering to pay next summer's tuition, which is thousands of dollars, and they'd never heard her play a note. We should mention something else about Melissa that probably won't shock you. She's gorgeous. She had long, flowing hair, stunning blue eyes, and a beautiful, bright smile. But 14-year-old Melissa wasn't wondering about why this older couple seemed so interested in her and was sneaking notes into her bunk and offering to alter her life, because she was from a family of musicians in South Africa. They weren't wealthy, and their country was in turmoil, and she had gotten a ticket to America and was standing next to a wishing well, and her wishes were coming true. You know, it fit in with with my idea of how life can be this magical thing that just things happen, you know, and I didn't have the red flag thing go up. Her cello teacher said, yeah, that happens sometimes. Wealthy Americans like to support promising students. So Melissa and her parents agreed. Epstein paid the bill, and she was back the next summer. And soon, Jeffrey and Ghislaine were arranging to meet up again. In that same spot by the wishing well in the the center of campus. This nice couple seemed to know everything about her. They seemed to have spent a lot of time researching this teenage girl's life. They knew which orchestra she was in, which chamber group had just accepted her. They even knew what music she was practicing for upcoming performances. Then they asked me, so you auditioned for the Academy? The Academy is a big deal. That's Interlochen's year-round boarding school. And if you go, it's a big step towards becoming a professional musician. It's that prestigious. So Melissa auditioned, but she told me it was just for the experience of auditioning, for practice. She was never going to go, even if she got in, because she didn't want to be that far from her parents in South Africa. And also, it cost 50 grand a year. They didn't have that kind of money. So that's what she told Jeffrey and Ghislaine. They said, but what if, what if that wasn't a problem? What if we paid for your education? And then would you go? And I said, you know... It's extremely generous, and wow, that's crazy, but I still don't really want to go because I don't feel emotionally, and I remember telling them I don't feel emotionally mature enough. Jeffrey and Ghislaine are not going to take no for an answer on this. They really want Melissa coming to boarding school at Interlochen, and they call her mom, and they call her dad in South Africa, and they tell them that this is a crucial step in Melissa's development, and they pretty much insist. And he said... Absolutely not. You know, his little girl is not going to leave home. But Jeffrey and Ghislaine are so insistent and relentless that Melissa's dad eventually gives in to a compromise. Melissa will spend one more year at home in South Africa, and then she'll attend Interlochen for her final two years of high school. So Jeffrey and Ghislaine are good at presenting themselves as artistic saviors. They tell Melissa, that that's what's happening here. They want to transform the lives of promising but broke artists, and that's what's happening. But sometimes Melissa wonders, of all the kids at Interlochen, why me? And she said, well, you've got um, you've got beautiful blue eyes, and Jeffrey likes blue eyes. And so I said, okay, but you don't pay that much money for somebody's eyes, you know, so what, what's the real reason? And she said, well, think of him as sort of like a Schindler, kind of a person who takes people and gets them out of really hard places and hard situations. Yeah, they mean Oscar Schindler, like Schindler's List Schindler, who saved more than a thousand Jews from concentration camps in the Holocaust. That kind of grandiose distortion, conflating a child's sexual predator with a hero saving lives, that's typical. We're going to pause here with Melissa's story for a moment to talk about grooming in general. 
the ways that sexual predators work. Psychologists and criminologists have studied sexual predators and identified the typical stages they go through, the steps they take to control the lives of their victims, the stages of grooming. The first stage is selection. Predators identify a potential victim who seems vulnerable. That's what happens when Epstein and Maxwell run into Melissa at the wishing well. They looked at people. They really looked into you and through you. I could feel them reading every bit of body language and every gesture and every, you know, they were really paying very close attention. And they had they had a rapport with each other. They would kind of look at each other through the corner of their eye, give a little smile. She's beautiful. She's innocent in that way they like. And she's alone in America. Her protectors are on the other side of the globe. So they tested her and found that she was naive and open to magical thinking and willing to accept their help. The second stage of grooming is gaining access. To do that, you need the kid's trust, but you also need the trust of the kid's family or whoever's supposed to be protecting this kid. Once you've got trust, you can get access. Let's talk about Epstein and Interlochen. He went to summer camp there when he was young. And then when he became rich, Epstein paid for the school to build a log cabin, the Jeffrey Epstein Scholarship Lodge. We found out he donated upwards of $400,000 to the school. Having your name on a building is a pretty acceptable reason for a grown man to be on campus. Plus, he had an age-appropriate girlfriend on his arm and that cute little dog. He wasn't there all that often, but when he showed up, he created this little world within the world of the camp, the VIP world, an invitation-only world. So one day, Melissa's hanging out with Jeffrey and Ghislaine at their cabin, and they ask her, what's her favorite cake? What kind of cake does she want? Which is obviously very strange, right? It's not her birthday. Why would she be thinking about cake? It's like one step away from strangers offering a kid candy. Uh, I don't know. It's just strawberry shortcake. It's just the first thing that came to mind, you know. Um, <laughs> don't really like strawberry shortcake, but that was, the, that was what popped into my head as a cake name, you know. And then weirdly quickly, this 20-something assistant of theirs shows up with a fresh baked strawberry shortcake. And I was like, wow, they, wow, huh. And uh, like, where did they get the ingredients? <laughs> you know, we're in the middle of nowhere. The wishing well, the cabin, the name on the building. Epstein and Maxwell are so good at creating this weird, unreal bubble around them where cakes just materialize. It's not threatening, not yet. It's the opposite, if anything. Meanwhile, life for Melissa's family back home is deteriorating. South Africa is in crisis. My mom had been carjacked at gunpoint, and my dad had been beaten up on the phone and while I was on the phone to him, you know, tied up. And it was rough, and we knew that. More than one neighbor was murdered. Melissa and her family are beginning to think that maybe she should just stay in America. Her parents were trying to get out of South Africa anyway. Maybe they should just come and join her. He knew that, and so he, you know, it was kind of, that was the Schindler situation. He's getting people out of situations, and and I've got music, and so that's my way to a better life. Things in the States seemed larger than life to us anyway. You know, we, there's Disneyland, you know, there's Disney World. It, it's a, there's Hollywood. You know, things exist that, that doesn't, it just doesn't exist anywhere else. So they agree. Melissa goes to Interlochen's boarding school for two years, totally paid for by Epstein. 
Then she applies for music conservatory, which is college for musicians. Ghislaine asks her where she's applying. And she said, I didn't hear Juilliard on that list. And she said, well, this is ridiculous. You know, you don't get to where you are and then not apply for the best school in the world. Like, that's insane. And she said, look, she's going to pay for my um, application. She'll give me the $100. They'll pay for my ticket to fly to New York. And and they're not going to have one of their kids that they're sponsoring not apply to the best school in the world. Three years into knowing Melissa, they were calling her one of their kids. She was fully embedded in their world. In her senior year at Interlochen, she spent spring break in an apartment Epstein owned on 66th Street. It was near Epstein's urban palace, the largest private residence in Manhattan. Melissa told me that each floor was decorated by period. You'd have the Baroque floor and the Renaissance floor and the Edwardian floor. Every single floor had a theme. There was a big sitting room where Melissa would hang out with Epstein and Maxwell. And she remembers noticing all the photographs on the wall. There's Epstein with Donald Trump, Epstein with Bill Clinton. Jeffrey would always be on the phone to somebody, and they would talk, you know. Elaine would say, did you did you contact Don about the whatever, whatever? And he was like, oh, right, I'll get on that. And so he picks up the phone and calls Don, and that was Donald Trump. And then she talks about Bill coming over for that thing and going on, you know, and flying to this and that. One day in that sitting room, They asked Melissa if she was going to Juilliard. She told them no. She really wanted to go to the New England Conservatory of Music, where she got a scholarship for free tuition, and she loved the cello teacher there. And also, she found Juilliard too harsh. It wasn't the right place for her temperament. This did not go over well. Why would I want to do that? You know, I get into the best school. Why would I want to go to not the best school? And from this opportunity, you have other opportunities because when you are the best, then you meet the best and then you, you know, it's just all of that. So they spoke about the best a lot. The New England Conservatory was not Jeffrey and Ghislaine's plan. Melissa was theirs. They wanted her near them in New York City at Juilliard. They pointed out that she'd gotten a promise of tuition but not living expenses at the New England school, so she couldn't really afford to go. She could have all of her dreams, they'd pay her tuition, room and board, everything, but only if she did what they demanded. She had to go to Juilliard. Fine, she decides. She'll go to Juilliard. It is the best. She realizes this is an amazing opportunity. But she decides to apply for financial aid. I didn't like the idea of being beholden to somebody and completely, if I can do it my own way, then that's better than being, you know, somebody's person. Melissa mentions this to Ghislaine. And she said that is the most ridiculous thing she's ever heard and it's actually insulting. And that for me to insult them that way, to assume that they A, can't afford it, B, are not happy to pay it, and that I would even consider the possibility that one of their children that they've looked after up until this point, that they would just drop like a hot potato and not just keep taking care of them. So I felt that so for being insulting. Yeah, she's offended. I said this earlier, and I'm going to repeat it now. Epstein and Maxwell never touched Melissa sexually. But there was one time in that sitting room with the pictures of Trump and Clinton when Epstein asked Melissa to massage his feet, and she did. But it didn't freak her out. Even though, as Ghislaine told her, Epstein was attracted to Melissa. He liked her eyes, and probably more. 
She was exactly his type. You know, I, I, when, I was, when I met them, I was this waif of a creature, just a stick creature with big boobs. Just think of all that time, all the energy and focus that Epstein and Maxwell are expending on Melissa. Hours and hours of cultivation over many years. As we'll hear later, at this same time, Epstein's abusing an insanely large number of girls. This is where we begin to get a crack into Epstein's psychology, and Maxwell's too. They're clearly fed by this desire to manipulate. They're not just grooming Melissa for physical and sexual purposes, although that may have been their initial intention. It's like they're into the act of grooming for its own sake. But their fixation on Melissa eventually dissipates. Got to the States and I ate all the crappy cafeteria food, drinking beer when, and being unhealthy and not sleeping. And just, you know, just I gained a bunch of weight. And then Jeffrey was not so interested in hanging out with me at that point. <laughs> Even if she was no longer sexually appealing to Epstein, Melissa still had utility. We know from lots of testimony and victim statements that Maxwell and Epstein had plenty of girls who they didn't attack sexually, but instead used to recruit other victims. In fact, it's possible that much of the reason they wanted Melissa in place at Juilliard is that it was a particularly attractive source of potential sexual recruits. And of course, it also happens to be an august institution with lots of cultural capital just a mile from Epstein's mansion. Melissa says Ghislaine, in particular, liked to visit her there. We were sitting on the on the stairs just outside Juilliard Lobby, you know, just outside uh, where everybody hangs out. So we were sitting there and, and this girl walked by and that was, she was just the most beautiful ballet dancer. Ghislaine just said, Jeffrey wants her to, um, to teach him ballet. Ghislaine had mentioned this student before. She'd been eyeing her for Jeffrey. Melissa didn't know her, but Ghislaine wanted Melissa to go up to this girl and get her to call Jeffrey. I said, I don't feel comfortable with that. I don't know her, and I don't really want to do that. She looked at me, and she smiled, and she said, how does it feel to have your life handed to you on a silver platter? And I paused, and uh, I was like, well, mm-hmm. And I knew this was, you know, this is where the strings are, and... Um, and she said, and how would you feel if that was taken away? Um, and I was like, oh, my gosh. This seems to me like the first time we've seen, like, the mask come off and that she's like, that you see, like, oh, this person is willing to hurt me. Yeah, I just felt like, I guess there are strings to everything. So Melissa does as she's told. So I went up to her and I, I to introduced myself. I said, I am really sorry to even be talking to her, but I don't really feel like I have an option. My sponsors have instructed me and they have told me that they want you to give him ballet lessons and he has a ballet studio in his house and um, want me to give this card to you to call. And I said, you don't have to do it. You can say no, but please just call them so that you know that they know that I gave you the card. Like I did my part. And what is the ballerina's reaction? She just looked at me strangely. I think she understood that, like, I am doing this thing that I obviously am not comfortable doing, that I don't want to be doing. I'm giving her this card. I don't really, I'm just like, ah, I'm just the messenger. So Melissa's kind of bombed her recruiting test here. Ghislaine contacts her with one more 
big test. She really wants me to meet Prince Andrew. I said something like, why would Prince Andrew want to meet me? She was like, oh, you know, you're a talented cellist, you're charming, you're all these things, you know, it would be so much, you know, you'd, he'd love to meet you and just come just come to this party or whatever it was and get together. And I and there was a concert that, that day that I was going to be at Juilliard and I said, I can't miss the concert. And she said that I can miss the concert and I will miss the concert. And I said, no, I actually, and this is where I actually felt confident, you know, and I knew that the rules were that you don't miss a performance. And if you miss a performance, you can be expelled. And I told her that. And she said that'd make an exception for me. I said, they won't make an exception for me. They didn't make an exception for Yo-Yo Ma. And I said, you can go and talk to the office about that. Like, you can, you're welcome to go and talk to them about whether I can miss this concert or not. And uh, I don't know if she followed up, but she did back down. It's 2003. Epstein is long since done with Melissa. Now, Maxwell seems to lose interest as well. Melissa's utility is waning. And then I got a bill from Juilliard. The full bill. As in a bill for $100,000. Melissa went to the office and said this must be a mistake. And they said, yeah, uh, it was actually sent back with an instruction that the bills are now to go to you and that I'm now responsible for these bills. Oh, my God. You know, like, there goes just, whoa. <laughs> that was that was really terrifying. And I didn't understand. I tried to call the office. Um, I called Jeffrey. I called Ghislaine. I didn't hear from, they didn't pick up. They didn't respond to my calls. I didn't hear back from them. I called Darren Indyke and his the lawyer or somebody that worked in his office, and he can't say anything other than he's sorry. And I, it's correct that Jeffrey is no longer going to be paying for this. She found out that she probably would have gotten a full ride at Juilliard if she had applied for financial aid, but now it was too late. This is the first time Melissa has spoken publicly about Epstein. She says she had no idea about the extent of his predatory behavior until he was arrested. And she doesn't see herself as anything like the victims who were attacked sexually. Her feelings about the whole thing are very complicated. And he had an addiction to playing games. He had an addiction to finding the gap between him and the person, finding what they need, what they want, and exploiting that and using that for his benefit. He had this fetish and this sickness that he really wanted. He wanted personal gain from that. He'd sexualized it somehow, this power and making things possible for people. This is Melissa playing when she was a student at Juilliard. She's still a musician to this day. We received statements from Interlochen and Juilliard, both saying they had no idea about Epstein's sexual crimes, and that it's actually common for people with different last names to pay for students' tuitions, so that wouldn't have raised any red flags. In a moment, we're going to talk about Epstein's other mode, his more aggressive behavior. The rest of this program might be upsetting to some listeners, certainly to children. If we want to understand Epstein's pathology, Remember that during his years manipulating Melissa, according to multiple reports, he was attacking an average of three girls a day with little subtlety and no patience. Coming up. People keep telling me that it wasn't my fault, 
but I don't know how to see it like that. A look at the other side of Jeffrey Epstein's abuse. Stay with us. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. When Michelle Licata was 16, she was a pretty happy teenager. I just got my braces off and I was feeling like a million bucks. She was in high school in West Palm Beach, which, despite the name, has very little in common with Palm Beach, about 30 minutes away, where Epstein had his home. Michelle's world had farms and fields and kids who wanted to grow up to be cowboys. Her parents worked at Home Depot. She was popular. She did the morning announcements in school. She went to football games and tried out for cheerleading. And she had plans. I actually wanted to be a secretary. I really thought that it would be neat to be someone's scheduler and just to kind of run somebody else's life for them. Michelle is the second youngest of seven kids, five of them boys. And she says the home was fun but chaotic. At Christmas, the family used a secret Santa method. Everyone would pull a name out of a hat and give one present to one sibling. But then Michelle heard about a way to make a bit more money. Maybe she could get everybody a present. She heard about it from someone she knew and trusted at school. We were sitting side by side in one of our classes, and she was writing me a note. Um, and she asked me if I wanted to make some money for, um, for Christmas that was coming up. All she had to do was massage some old guy. Michelle had some questions, like... Do you need a license for that? No, her friend said. But then she added, don't tell anyone or I'll kick your ass. It didn't occur to Michelle that this might be about sex. She had a friend whose mom was a masseuse, and she knew that some people like massages. She says she was naive. She had slept with a boy once, but it was quick, and she barely knew what happened. You know, I still kept my shirt on. I mean, I I didn't like people looking at me, and I didn't think I was as fully developed as all the other girls in school. So one day, her friend picks her up, and they start driving. Um, We were going down, and, and everybody knew that Palm Beach was the area that had the most money. It was it was a very rich area. It was very beautiful. The shops were expensive. She thought, oh, yeah, this makes sense. If I'm going to earn a couple hundred bucks to give some guy a massage, it's probably going to be where the money is. But then the car heads into a residential neighborhood and then a driveway. The two of them walk in through the back door, and there's tons of food laid out on the table, like a chef had prepared it. Then a woman came to get Michelle. To me, she looked kind of like someone's personal assistant. And that's so crazy because uh, that's what I wanted to be when I grew up. And so I followed this lady up the stairs, and 
she was just kind of like prepping me for this room and for this man that was supposed to be in this room. The room, Michelle says, was like a giant, luxurious bathroom. It was steamy. It had the biggest shower she'd ever seen in her life. You know, there was a, a massage table when you went in there, and there was money already sitting out. There was lotion sitting out. There was a, a timer sitting out. It was also weird. But remember, Michelle's just a teenager. She's never been here before. She has no idea what's normal. Maybe he's just a guy that has a lot of money and just can afford people to come to his house to massage him. So he came in the room and and he was like, I'm, I'm Jeffrey and um, I'm going to be on the phone. I'm going to be taking some phone calls. If you want, there's um, lotions. Just get started by working on my feet. And I was like, uh, okay. Um, you know, every once in a while, he would tell me to massage his calves or massage his, his thighs. Um, he just kept getting closer and closer to, like, his butt area. At some point, he hangs up the phone and begins asking her questions, personal questions about school and boyfriends. Like, are you having sex? You're very beautiful. You're very gorgeous. And I didn't look at myself that way. And and then for him to be giving me these compliments, it felt very awkward. And I was a really shy girl when it came to my body and you know he told me to he's like okay you could go ahead and and get into your underwear and I was like okay um I did that and um he was still talking to me about my my sex life and he asked me to spin around and then things escalated quickly and he just kind of held his hand um, just on my vagina, and he was like, you know, he was shaking, shaking it, and that, that's when I, I, I backed up against the wall, and I put my hands up, and I was saying, like, I don't, I don't know, I don't, I just, that's, I don't, I don't feel right, like, what are you doing? And, um, and he said, sorry, sorry, okay, okay, you know, I won't do that. And I was like, okay, like this is so terrible. I was just, I was trying to figure out, like, what do I got to do? How do I get out of here? Um, when is that timer going to go off? I just, I knew that I was, I was already traumatized. Um, and he knew that I knew that that he was doing something wrong, but he didn't care anyways. Like, he was it's like, I'm just going to enjoy this this moment while it lasts. Um. <sighs> Michelle's experience is like a super fast motion version of Melissa's. The same stages of grooming. Selecting a vulnerable victim, isolating them from any protection, building trust, creating this otherworldly space in which he defines what's normal and the victim is the one out of place and out of sorts. And Epstein creates a false sense that the victim's consenting. 
Michelle had agreed to come here to do something secret for money to stay in this room until the timer went off. She says she's not sure exactly how he did it. But with those quick, personal questions, Epstein seemed to have sized her up and figured out exactly what to say and do to keep her in that room. And anyway, he had set the stage perfectly. Even if she had decided to leave, where would she go? I I went out the door and down the stairs again and back into the kitchen, and nobody knew where I was except for that girl that brought me. And obviously, if she brought me, then I was like, okay, she's in on it. Like, she's in on it, and, and, and I'm the one looking like the idiot. And she's like, she said, what, what, what happened? And I was like, I will tell you in the car. Like, I wanted to get out and, and get somewhere where I knew I was getting as far away from this place as I could possibly get. <sighs> and I looked at her and she's like, what, what happened? And I was like, well, he was, you know, he, he like, he fingered me and, or he tried to, and, you know, I backed away and. And she said, oh, that's okay. He did that. He did that to my last friend. And I was like, are you kidding me? I was like, you brought your another friend here and you brought another friend here and you think that that's okay. And so I was, I was just, I put my sunglasses on and I looked out the window, the entire car ride home, just crying. And very quietly, I didn't want her to know I was crying, and I just stared out the window. Michelle never went back to that house. She never saw Jeffrey Epstein again. But that assault had a huge impact on her life. She had been a happy, if naive, 16-year-old. And now she began sexually acting out. And I think it it twisted my brain to think differently. I just wanted to, I wanted to treat guys the way that I was treated that day. Like, like I'm going to be that one to make them feel like they were just a piece of meat because that's exactly how I felt that day. And, and that's exactly what I did. I did that for a really long time. I, I didn't want to get close to anybody. You know, I kept people at a distance. I just, that's not how I wanted to be, but that's, I wanted like revenge and I couldn't get it, you know, because I didn't want to go back to that scary place. I just, I just wanted to, to treat men the way that I was treated. It's impossible not to notice the class and cultural differences here. Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell clearly enjoyed the prestige of having a world-class cellist under their thumbs and having her give them access to other artistic, promising teens. And for that, they were willing to spend lots of time and lots of money and to slowly, painstakingly coerce this girl and her family into living the life they prescribed. Conversely, you can hear the contempt he felt towards Michelle in her story. He treated Michelle with an almost casual carelessness, like she wasn't worth any strategizing. We've heard similar stories from other girls who went to Michelle's high school on the wrong side of Palm Beach. It reminds me of what Steve Hoffenberg told us last week about the way Epstein heedlessly took advantage of people with Towers Financial and basically just screwed them over. 
Remember, he was involved in what was, at that time, the largest Ponzi scheme in history. The point is, Epstein is happy being a plundering aggressor with certain kinds of people, people from the wrong side of the tracks, which, don't forget, is exactly where Epstein himself started out. Ghislaine, likewise, seems to enjoy walking all over the little people. Here again is Melissa Solomon, the cellist. Well, Ghislaine is, um, she's a force of nature, and she will look you right through you and tell you that you will do this thing, and you know, you just know that there are no, it's not up for negotiation, and you don't say no, you just do it. But it'll be fun, and it'll be nice, but there's no option. Once, Melissa was waiting online at the post office when Ghislaine called her with a demand. She said, you never keep me waiting. Never keep me waiting. And her tone changed really hard. I was like, oh my God, I'm sorry. And I said, I'm still in the line at the post office, you know. Um, She said, what the hell are you doing waiting in a line? And I said, well, there is one. And I have to get it in. And so she met me at the post office and she said, you never wait in lines. And she marched me to the front of the line and with my envelope. And she looked at the man with the smile and that dominating kind of feeling that she had. She looked at him and she said, you need to mail this now. And he said, there's a line. And she said, yes, and I'm at the front of it. I mean, I knew, I knew at that point anyway, rules don't apply to them. You know, there's traffic, they get around it, their limo does some crazy driving and they get through it somehow. You know, something sold out. They have the best seats in the house. Something is not possible. It's suddenly possible. Somebody says no, it turns into yes. You know, it's, I knew that rules don't really apply to them. If they want something, they will get it. Um, And that's the way they function. That's the way the world functions with them. We spoke with one psychologist who specializes in pedophiles. And he said that Epstein does stand out that he victimized far more people than any other known assailant. But that's not because he was the only one who wanted to. This psychologist, who has interviewed hundreds of pedophiles, said many of them would have loved to abuse as many people as Epstein did. They just didn't have his money, his access. They didn't have lodges at prestigious private camps, a network of paid enablers, and the ability to twist victims' lives around his whims. Melissa doesn't feel like a victim. But Michelle is still reckoning with the trauma today, more than a decade later. She blames herself for her assault. She feels like she shouldn't have been so trusting. We asked Michelle what she would say to her younger self today. It's really hard to, to say um, uh, because people keep telling me that it wasn't my fault. But I don't know how to see it like that. I don't know the reason I think that it was my fault was because I feel like if I was just smarter or maybe if I was just wiser to, to realize like, this is a bad situation. You don't just don't let what happened to you define the rest of your life. And don't let this world, eat you up. Don't, don't let them do it. You know? (sighs) 
Broken, Jeffrey Epstein, is produced by Three Uncanny Four Productions. Our senior producers are TJ Raphael and Krista Ripple. Dan Bobkoff is our showrunner. Production help this week from Jennifer Siegel, Lena Richards, and Jack Panyard. Jean Montolvo-Lucar is our engineer, and Casey Holford composed the theme. Benjamin Kalin is our fact checker. Special thanks this week to Dr. Elizabeth Jeglick, Tim Ambrose, Dr. Michael Bork, Crispin Campbell, Joaquin Kotler, J. Paul Neely, and Kristen Corbera. Extra special thanks to Daniel Bates. Our special correspondent and executive producer is Julie K. Brown. Our other executive producers are Adam Davidson, Laura Mayer, Adam McKay, and Kevin Messick. Share your thoughts on Twitter with the hashtag broken, Jeffrey Epstein. You can follow me at AVLSkies, that's A-V-L-S-K-I-E-S. Follow Julie Brown at JKB Journalist. And you can rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners like you find us. For Broken, I'm Arielle Levy.